the true people of God, the true Israel of God as Jews and Gentiles who are found in Christ, which is not replacement theology, it's fulfillment theology, because God promised to Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the world. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And this evening, we do want to return back to our study on the Apostles. Galatians chapter 1, we began to look at the last Apostle called by God, the Apostle Paul. He is, uh, we've called him the Apostle sovereignly appointed by God. And we'll pick up in Galatians chapter 1. Let me begin reading in verse 11 and I'll read down through verse 24. And go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, 
And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Please be seated and let us ask for the Lord's help. Dear God, we come into Your presence this evening to sit again under the instruction of Your Holy Word. Father, we, we desire, Lord, to understand Your truth. We desire, Lord, to know Your truth, to know You better. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at this epistle that Paul writes to the Galatians and try to understand a little bit better what type of apostle he was, the credentials of his apostleship. We pray that you would give us great insight and wisdom into this man who is considered the greatest Christian that ever lived. Grant us your grace and the power of your Spirit. We pray these things in the blessed and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, tonight we come to the end of a very long series on the Apostles. And those of you who maybe haven't been with us the whole time, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. And when we got to the list of the Apostles that are listed there that Jesus called into the ministry, we began to look at those Apostles one by one. And we looked at two or three at a time and and sermons to look at their lives, sort of biographical sketches, and to try to draw some principles out of their lives that would be helpful for us spiritually. We took our cue from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And what we are trying to do in this study is understand that we need real life examples of human beings before us. Models, if you will, of people that we can follow. And it's true that we are not merely to follow the apostles. Paul was an apostle and he said, As much as I follow Christ, follow me. As much as I imitate Christ, imitate me. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, we read this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Everyone needs heroes. Everyone needs spiritual heroes, heroes of the faith. We could go to uh, Hebrews 11 and look at the Hall of Faith chapter and look at all the people down through history that God is blessed because of their faith in God, because of a life of holiness, a life of courage, a life of boldness. But we have chosen to look specifically at the apostles. That presents somewhat of a dilemma because, as you well know, Jesus chose originally 12 apostles, one of which defected. He deserted the apostolic band. He betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He is, as we said this morning from John seventeen twelve the son of perdition. There is no salvation for Judas. Judas is in hell today. But we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament. The church existed in the Old Testament in embryonic form, but it began to be built after its birthday on the day of Pentecost when the full measure of the Spirit was poured out. The Spirit of God was present and active in the hearts and the lives of saints in the Old Testament, regenerating souls, sanctifying souls. David speaks about the Spirit of God in the Psalms. The Spirit was there, but the Spirit was not poured out in the measure that it was poured out in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was poured forth on the day of Pentecost to empower Christians to preach the gospel and to extend the gospel 
to the ends of the earth, to go beyond just the salvation of ethnic Jews and to actually reach in a massive way Gentiles. The Spirit was predominantly at work among the Jewish people in the Old Testament. He was just as powerfully at work among the Jewish people of the Old Testament as he is among the church today, but he was not as operative among Gentiles. You saw few and far Gentile conversions in the Old Testament. So Jesus wants to build his church after his resurrection, and he ascends. He sends forth the Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete, as Jesus calls him, to indwell his people, to empower them to preach the gospel. But there's only 11 apostles at this point because Judas has defected. And so we looked at Acts chapter 1 and the selection process of Matthias, a man that we know precious little about. He was chosen based on a couple of qualifications. Number one, the apostle Peter, deducing from Scripture from the Old Testament in his wonderful exposition, said that in order to be an apostle, you have to walk with our Lord three years. You had to have been with him during his earthly ministry from the beginning of his baptism all the way to his resurrection. That really narrowed down the list. Then Peter said, also, you need to have seen Jesus post-resurrection. And so they narrowed this thing down. There were 500 people that Jesus appeared to, but not all 500 of those people were men. You had to be a man to be an apostle, obviously. And number two, not all 500 of them had walked with Christ for three years from the beginning of his baptism. So that came down to Barsabbas and Matthias, and they cast lots taking this thing to the Lord in prayer, saying, Lord, you do this, you choose, and Matthias was selected. That took him back to 12, but technically that was 13, right? And now the Apostle Paul comes along, and his apostolic credentials are constantly questioned, first of all, because he is the 14th Apostle, and that sort of messes up the number 12 that corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is building the church, which is the true Israel of God, with the 12 apostles, one defects, he's replaced. Now we got another apostle. The total's now 14. What's going on here? Are the scriptures reliable? I mean, is God in control of things? Here you have one guy defecting from the closest inner circle that ever existed to the earthly life of Jesus. He's replaced by a no-name. And then here comes this apostle who was converted to Christianity, this persecutor of the church, The blinding light on the Damascus road caught his attention, gripped his heart. And in one fell swoop, the apostle Paul was converted and called to be an apostle. There were no apostles there on the Damascus road. Paul didn't interact with any apostles. He didn't sit before some ordination council to get the approval of fallible men. And so what people began to do is come behind the apostle Paul and say, you know what, Paul, I know you love him, uh, but you know what, you really need to question his apostleship. Did he see the resurrected Christ? Did he walk with Christ three years on this earth? What was behind that was the same thing that was behind all that was thrown against the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry from the religious leaders. They were envious of Jesus. We saw that this morning. Pilate knew that. Pilate knew he was innocent, but they delivered Paul up because they were envious of him. They were jealous of him, of Jesus. The same thing was true with the Judaizers, this group of false teachers that were teaching that Not only was faith in Jesus good for salvation, but you needed to add the yoke of the law. You needed to be circumcised if you were a Gentile convert. You needed to honor the Sabbath according to the Old Testament regulations with no differences whatsoever. You needed to abstain from certain foods. You you needed to basically become a Jew outwardly. And if you did not do that, then your salvation was in question. Because to the Judaizers, it was faith plus the law that equaled salvation. 
Here comes the Apostle Paul. He's a Jew. He's a persecutor of the church. And he says, don't listen to the Judaizers. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the true gospel. And he says in Galatians 1, verse 1, this is how he opens the letter. Notice that Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He knows these Judaizers have infiltrated these Galatian churches. And he wants to say to them, look, the gospel that I preach did not come from men. It did not come through man. It came through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it, verse 12, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis. An apocalyptic vision where God reveals Himself, He hears the Lord Jesus Christ, He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. But the issue with the Judaizers was if we can somehow convince people that His apostolic credentials are not legitimate, if we can undermine the man, then we have effectively undermined the message. Pretty smart, right? They never stood up and said, salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They never said that. They would have never said that. If you would have asked them how to be saved, they would have said, by faith. But they, like the Roman Catholic Church, would have added a whole bunch of other things to it. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. The whole thrust, the whole emphasis of their teaching ministry was not on the gospel. It was on the law. Paul comes along and he says, if you're a true Christian, obviously you'll follow the law of God. You'll be indwelt by the Spirit of God. You'll want to honor the Lord. You'll delight in the law of God, as the psalmist says. But you're not saved according to what you do in obedience to the law. And I'm a prime example of that. By the grace of God, I am who I am. I am the most unlikely candidate to be a Christian. I was born of the tribe of Israel. I was circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the law, I was found blameless, he says in Philippians chapter 3. But he says, I count all that as rubbish or dung because now I know Christ. And the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is far greater than any obedience to the law of God. Paul was object number one as an example of someone who was saved sovereignly by God's grace. So Paul, when he writes to these Galatians, he wants to defend his apostleship. He wants to argue right out of the gates, I am an apostle. I can prove it to you. Because in doing that, he's really defending the gospel. Remember, we said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he did the same thing. He defended his apostleship. He said, I'm foolish for doing this. I'm like a child. This is, this is crazy. I'm like a madman having to defend myself, but I'll do it for you. Because you heard the gospel that I preached. You trusted me. And you one day said you converted to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So why are you beginning to believe the Corinthian false teachers when they say that I'm not a true apostle? The same thing was going on here in Galatia. Paul not only had the Jews who hated him, and he not only had the Roman government that wanted to take off his head and eventually did, he had people within the church that hated him. And even when he was in prison, he wrote to the Philippians and and he says, you know, some preach Christ out of goodwill, but others preach it so they hurt me while I'm in prison. They don't care about me. Because there are always people in leadership in churches who are in it for the wrong reasons, right? Maybe they're in it for the money. Maybe they're in it for the fame. Maybe they're in it for the popularity. They're not in it for the truth. 
They'll do anything they can to gain an upper hand, to dominate, to manipulate. The church is full of those sorts of people. If there could be a Judas among the twelve, there certainly can be false pastors, false prophets, false elders. The list goes on. So Paul wants to defend his apostleship in an effort to defend the gospel and show the legitimacy of that. So he says in verse 13, You've heard of my former manner of life, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions. I was the up-and-coming rising star of Phariseeism. I trained under Gamaliel. We know that from Acts chapter 5. The greatest Jewish teacher of the day. While Paul was training under Gamaliel, the apostles were training under Christ. But now this turnaround, and he wants to explain how this happened. So in an effort to defend his apostolic credentials, he gives three arguments. And we looked at the first one last week. Let's just review it quickly. He argues, first of all, in verses 15 through 16a, that his apostleship was rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention. And that began on the Damascus Road, but reached further back than that, right? Back all the way in eternity past. When he was consecrated, notice the beginning of verse 15, but when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born. He echoes the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah says, God set me apart in my mother's womb. He echoes Isaiah, God set me apart when I was in my mother's womb. Both of those prophets, by the way, were prophets to the nations. Paul, as we'll see, became an apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, I didn't see what they did and how they would behave. I chose Jacob in the womb of his mother. John the Baptist, set apart by the Spirit, consecrated in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. Well, this goes on. Paul says, I'm no different than an Old Testament prophet, except I'm a New Testament apostle. I didn't choose to do this. The gospel I received wasn't something I invented. Uh, No man came to me and told me what it was. God set me apart in my mother's womb and Of course, that's a comforting reality, the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Before the beginning of time, God has chosen all of those that His Son would redeem. And He placed His people in the heart of His Son before His Son ever walked this earth. So that by the time Jesus got to the cross, He had His own people on His mind. He had the bride on His mind. He had the church on His mind. He had those that He would redeem with His own blood. Paul says... God consecrated me. He set me apart sovereignly. He sovereignly pursued me. There was this sovereignly pursued intervention. I was on my way on the Damascus Road to kill Christians, to arrest them. And God arrested me through Christ. Through a blinding light in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's almost like God saying, look, I set you apart from your mother's womb. You didn't know that. Now you do know that. Now go. I will make you an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul said, okay, I'll go. Sovereignly intervened in his life. He had no choice. Listen to me. Someone who is a true believer knows God is sovereign. A true believer is a Calvinist whether they know it or not. Because they understand that God saved them, right? He rescued them. You understand that. That's your testimony. You wouldn't be here tonight. You wouldn't be dealing with this. 
You wouldn't be trying to live a holy life and honor the Lord if you didn't know God intervened in your life and set you apart in your mother's womb. That's what helps you press on. Paul says, look, I was consecrated. God sovereignly pursued me. He consecrated me. Not only that, but He converted me. Notice the middle of verse 15. And He called me by His grace. This is the effectual call of God. Literally, Jesus called out to Him in a literal voice that Paul heard. He literally saw Jesus. He says as much, I saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ ascended. What He could see of Him in the blinding light. He heard that voice. He was effectually called and drawn to Christ. Forgiven of a sin, restored, justified, put on the holy path, turned around. Obviously, repentance took place because he made an immediate 180. Instead of seeking to destroy the church, he turned around and he went to defend the church, to defend the bride, to defend God's people because God sovereignly intervened in his life. He was consecrated, he was converted, and he was also commissioned. Verse 16. This was sovereign too. God was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul says, not only was there a specific calling upon my life set apart in my mother's womb to be an apostle in the New Testament, but He gave me a specific task which was, catch this, unique from all the other apostles. All the other apostles were to wait in Jerusalem Acts chapter 1, verse 8, till the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. For Paul, it was go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Go to the Gentiles. Go to the Gentiles. You are my instrument to the Gentiles. Paul did it. Why did he do it? Because God sovereignly pursued him and intervened in his life supernaturally. That's your testimony tonight if you're a Christian. In the sense that you understand God has a particular calling for you. He has set you apart from before the foundation of the world. He has saved you. He has washed you. He has placed you in Christ. He wants you to be a servant. He wants you to serve the church. He wants you to serve one another. He wants you to be an instrument in His hand where you are totally given to Him as a living sacrifice. That's the language not of the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Romans chapter 12. A living sacrifice. Completely burnt up for God. Completely burnt up. For God, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the criticism, no matter the consequences, no matter. That's what every Christian is called to. But now Paul begins to move on to a second line of argumentation. He's defending the credentials of his apostleship, and he says, Look, I was sovereignly pursued. Sovereignly pursued. There was a sovereignly pursued intervention in my life. But secondly, he says, There was a sovereignly purposed isolation. We see this in the second half of verse 16 through verse 21. After a sudden conversion, Paul ends up in Damascus. He's led there by the hand of the Lord, we read in Acts 9 and verse 8. From now on, he would submit to Christ his master. He would no longer persecute the church. So he says, notice the end of verse 16, Once this conversion happened, I did not immediately consult with anyone. The Lord told him to go to Damascus, and he did. He was still blinded, by the way. But there was another man in Damascus by the name of Ananias. We read about him in Acts chapter 9. He goes and sees Paul because the Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision as well and told Ananias through this vision that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. Really? Paul? 
Saul of Tarsus? But he obeyed too. He went to Paul. He laid hands on Paul. He restored his sight. He baptized him. But Paul says, I did not consult with anyone. Paul didn't go to Ananias. Ananias came to him in obedience to the Lord. And Ananias told him in Acts 22 that he would be a witness to everyone after seeing the righteous one. Paul didn't ask for this information. Paul already knew this information. Paul didn't need this information. This was not a consultation. Paul didn't need anyone to consult with. But he did need his sight restored. That would be helpful. He did need someone to baptize him. That would be helpful. And so that is what occurred. Paul was in Damascus then some days preaching in the synagogues. We read about this in in Acts chapter 9. He immediately begins to preach, which I absolutely love. Verse uh, Acts chapter 9 says that immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Now notice this, he's not met one apostle. Not one. He's met Christ. And he's already in the synagogues. He's already lined up a speaking schedule to say one thing. He is the Son of God. Jesus is. No consultation. He didn't consult with anyone. He didn't go to Jerusalem to consult with the other apostles. He didn't go to seek their approval. He is in isolation from them. He doesn't need confirmation from Ananias, although that was offered. He doesn't need it from another apostle. He met Jesus Christ. He saw Him. He talked with Him. He did not need a consultation with anyone. I would prefer your Bibles to read, I did not immediately consult with Sarki and Amittai. Flesh and blood. I saw Christ. I need some mere man to tell me what I know. In a sense, that's true about you, right? If you love Christ and He has your heart, there's nothing in this world that can tell you He is not real. You would go to your grave with Christ on your lips no matter what it cost you. That's the history of Christians. That's Paul. So instead of going to Jerusalem or the other apostles were, he stayed in isolation. Notice this, verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Notice that. Yeah, they were apostles before me, but so what? I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Very, very interesting. Paul doesn't book a trip to Jerusalem. He just begins to preach on his own. He doesn't ask for any approval. This one who was untimely born... He came after all the other apostles before him. Instead of going to Jerusalem, he goes to Arabia. Arabia. Why? Well, probably for meditation, education, communion with Christ. Arabia was sparsely inhabited. It was located on the Sinai Peninsula. Damascus was near it. So he's already in Damascus. I'll just shoot over into the desert and I guess I'll stay there for three years. You have to remember... Not to overestimate the dramatic experience Paul had. 
Ever since he was a little boy growing up in the synagogue, all he ever wanted to do was to be a scribe and a Pharisee. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he was the prized student of Gamaliel. He went to the greatest seminary with the greatest seminary president. He was the rising star, not in a church, not in a denomination, but in a whole religion. He needed some time away. I know what I saw. I know what just happened, but what just happened? So he goes to the desert. By the way, this was not just a time period of seclusion. So don't think this was, well, maybe I need to go think through this and make sure I I know what I saw. I know what I saw. And we know that he knew what he saw because in 2 Corinthians 11.32, he says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. He says here in Galatians 1 that he went to Arabia, then he returned to Damascus. When he returned to Damascus, why do you think that the king wanted to arrest him? Because Paul in the desert had been preaching the gospel. He was secluded and isolated, but still preaching the gospel. So he goes to the desert for three years to reinvent himself with a theological education. No doubt studying the Scriptures, praying to God, preaching the Gospel. Verse 18 goes on to say, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. After a stint in the desert and in Damascus, then he goes up to Jerusalem but not after three years in the desert. Why was this? Well, you remember one of the qualifications for an apostle from Acts chapter 1 is that you walked with the Lord the three years of his life, beginning in his baptism. Well, you can't go back in time and do that, but the next best thing that you can do is go in the desert and have Christ teach you. Perhaps Christ even appeared to him again. If he did, Paul would never tell you. Because remember, he, he was caught up in a vision one time. And he said, I don't even want to talk about this, but, uh, and I'm not even going to tell you what happened. It's likely Christ visited him again and personally ministered to him uninterrupted with no other disciples jockeying for attention. This was a better education than the original 12. This is one-on-one teacher-to-pupil ratio. Three years in the desert. Let's talk about those qualifications for a minute. Paul didn't see the resurrected Christ post-resurrection. He did better. He saw Him post-ascension. Ruling and reigning. Paul did not walk with Christ three years during his earthly ministry. He did better. He was in Arabia for three years with Christ. Paul says... Christ came to me personally, privately, powerfully. The Spirit of God birthed me anew. So after three years, verse 18, I thought it might be a good idea to go visit Cephas. Maybe I should get acquainted with him. So he does that. It says he remained there. Notice your Bible for 15 days. Hardly enough time to get Peter's approval, right? He had already been preaching in Damascus. This wasn't a vetting. This, this was not, oh, I need your approval, Peter. 
Peter wasn't the Pope. He never was. Paul knew that. He was equal to Paul. In fact, Peter probably had some things to learn from Paul, don't you think? Three years in the desert alone with Christ. What in the world happened there, Paul? You were Saul of Tarsus. Now you're Paul. It was a visit. Peter was the leader of the twelve. He was the leader of the early church. He had preached on Pentecost. 3,000 souls were converted. So it would make sense that he would make a visit to Cephas. The word visit in the Greek was actually used of sightseeing, which I think is kind of comical. Paul says, well, I have nothing better to do. I'm done preaching here. The king's trying to kill me. I guess I'll go say hi to Peter and see what he's about. Sightseeing. This isn't a theological visit. This is a personal visit. And in fact, during those 15 days, which was hardly enough time for Peter to know whether or not Paul was legitimately what he claimed to be and was actually converted, we read in Acts chapter 9 that he went among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. They were seeking to kill him. And the brothers learned of this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He got in trouble in Jerusalem too. Not by the apostles, they helped him. But because he was not just visiting with Peter, he wasn't just sightseeing, he was preaching. Martin Luther notes that Paul wasn't commanded by Christ to go to Jerusalem either. He went there voluntarily. So Paul goes on to say in verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. If not for his life being threatened in Damascus, who knows when he would have made it to Jerusalem to meet Peter. It may have been several years before he met any apostle. He was lowered down the city walls in a basket to escape to go to Jerusalem. And there he met with Peter. And he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. Now, this is not the apostle James. Notice it says, James, the Lord's brother. Jesus had several half-brothers and half-sisters. We read their names earlier this morning. One of them was named James. This is the author of the epistle of James. James was not an apostle. In fact, the apostle James had been martyred. If you, if you go with me to uh, Acts chapter 12... The Apostle James was the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. He was killed, the first one martyred. Acts 12.1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So now you begin to see the martyrdom of the apostles. James is the first one to go. He's not around in Jerusalem when Paul's there. This isn't the Apostle James. It's also not James the son of Alphaeus, which was the name of another apostle. No, this James is the Lord's brother, the literal half-brother of our Lord, who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. He wasn't a believer apparently until that point. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. We read about him in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21, Galatians chapter 2, a really dominant figure 
the Lord's brother. Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles because they weren't in Jerusalem at this time. The apostle James having been put to death. We read in Matthew chapter 13, it would probably be a a good idea to turn over there just for a moment. I guess I could say all these things and you could just believe me, but maybe you could look at your Bible. They're saying about Jesus in Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son, is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So it's clear that Joseph and Mary had natural offspring after Jesus was born. Regardless of what the Roman Catholic Church may teach, the perpetual virginity of Mary is a wives' tale. It's not true. It's a large family. And that Greek construction, I just want to point this out in verse 19. It says, Heteron ois iden I may. That does not have to be taken as the only other apostle I saw was James, the Lord's brother. It could be taken this way. I saw none of the other apostles, but I did see James, the Lord's brother. That's another way to read it, and that's the right way to read it. Contextually, logically, biblically, this could not be anybody other than the Lord's brother, and and the Lord's brother was not an apostle. But he was a leader in the church. Now, knowing his enemies, the Judaizers disputed the legitimacy of his apostleship, Paul, in verse 21, makes an oath. Notice it. He says, verse 20, excuse me, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. I do not lie. This is an oath. You say, is it okay to take oaths? Of course it's okay to take oaths as long as you're telling the truth. Paul was telling the truth. He uses this language often, Romans 1.9, he says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. God is my witness. He says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, remember there were the Corinthian conspirators who said he wasn't a true apostle. He has to defend himself here in this letter. And he says in 2 Corinthians 1.23, But I call God to witness against me. I call Him to witness against me. Because I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, Paul says. And uh, he does it in another place in 1 Timothy 2.7. Paul's saying, look, I'm not preaching my own message. I didn't receive a gospel from some man. I didn't go to Jerusalem to receive approval from the apostles. I saw the risen Christ. He converted me. He called me into the ministry. He consecrated me in my mother's womb. He commissioned me. I was in relative isolation from the apostles. I didn't have time to learn the gospel from the apostles. Christ taught it to me. The Judaizers were saying, well, Paul just was taught the gospel by by the apostles and then he twisted it. 
Paul says, I didn't, I didn't even talk to the apostles about the gospel. I was saved apart from them. And the only time I was ever around Peter was in Jerusalem for 15 days, and I was so busy during that time that I was preaching myself, and they had to get me out of there. And three years before that, I was in the desert. Relative isolation. So Thomas Schreiner, my former New Testament professor, has a great commentary on Galatians, and this is what he says, and I quote, The independence of Paul's gospel, that is, he received it independently from the other apostles, is important because the Judaizers likely charged Paul that he got his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and was dependent upon them and that subsequently distorted what he received from them. Paul says they're lying. I swear to God, they're lying. Strong stuff. But he has a third line of argument. He's defending his apostolic credentials and he says, my apostleship was rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention. I didn't ask for this. God threw me into it and I gladly obeyed him. My apostleship was rooted not only in a sovereignly pursued intervention, but a sovereignly purposed isolation. I was so separate and segregated and isolated from the other apostles. There's no way that I could have heard the gospel from them and then perverted it. I didn't learn it from them, but they heard me preach in Jerusalem and they appreciated so much my ministry that when my life was threatened, they helped me to escape. Peter, that is. But now he says a final thing. Not only is my apostleship rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention, a sovereignly purposed isolation, but a sovereignly publicized indication. Notice in verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Then is a reference back to the plot of hostile Jews who wanted to put him to death. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. He's escorted out of Jerusalem, and they sent him to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia was where Paul was from. He was from Tarsus, which was located in Cilicia. So he goes there. Barnabas requested his services in Antioch, which was located in Syria. So he went there. It says Paul remained in these regions preaching. Verse 23 later says that they heard his preaching. But Paul remained in Antioch, Syria, from which you know uh, Acts chapter 11, the disciples were first called Christians there until he was set apart with Barnabas to go on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. When he came back from that missionary journey, he came back to Antioch, and that was the occasion of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where the Judaizers were preaching a different gospel. Now do you see the history? They've been on Paul's heels since the beginning. Since the beginning. So he continues in verse 22, "...and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." So I'm going around preaching... I preached in the desert, Damascus. I preached a little bit in Jerusalem. I went to Cilicia. I went to Syria. And all this time has elapsed and people in Judea, which is the province where Jerusalem is located, they've never even met me. I'm still unknown to them, to those churches in Judea. That would be not the church in Jerusalem, but the, the churches in the outlying regions of Judea, made up of Jewish Christians. Paul was in Jerusalem, but he didn't go to the country. He went to Cilicia, he went to Syria, he was unknown. You say, well, why do we care about that? Well, 
Because of what verse 23 says, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So word was passing that Paul had been converted and was a changed man. That he was preaching the same gospel and souls were being converted. You say, well, why is that important? Because of their response to that. Verse 24 And Paul says, they glorified God because of me. It's a pretty good argument. They never even met me and they knew that I was preaching the gospel. Word had spread regarding the legitimacy of what I preached consistent with the apostles and all of the converts, all the churches that were planted, all of the lives that were changed. They didn't even know me and they worshipped and glorified God because of me. That's not an indication that I'm an apostle. Then you'll never be convinced, Paul is saying. You'll never be convinced. And this would have been difficult. If you go back with me to Acts chapter 9, for them to glorify God because of Paul, this was the chief persecutor of the church. would have been quite a challenge. In fact, Ananias answered the Lord in that vision, Lord, I have heard, verse 13 of Acts 9, from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name? And you want me to do what? The Lord said, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It would have been very hard to believe Paul. And yet people that never even met him knew he was the real deal. They knew it. They knew it. Galatians chapter 2, he He goes on to say that after 14 years, he finally went up again to Jerusalem. That's a long time. But all of these saints who don't know him are worshiping and glorifying God because the gospel is being preached and the gospel is being spread. Paul and Barnabas were given the right hand of fellowship in Galatians 2.9 by Peter, James, and John, that inner circle. Peter later, you're aware of this in, in, in 2 Peter um, you know, for everything that Peter was, I'm convinced that he had a good sense of humor because in Second Peter chapter 3, um, Peter says in verse 15, you need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul. Our beloved brother Paul? Peter got it. Also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. Sometimes Paul starts to talk and your head spins, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do, Peter says, the other scriptures. Peter confirms he was an apostle and wrote the other scriptures. He wrote what he wrote was parallel with the other scriptures. That, that's parallel with the Old Testament. He's placing Paul's writings on the same authoritative grounds as the Old Testament. So Paul was an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. He was called by our Lord to be an apostle. The 14th apostle. Why 14, given the significance of 12? Why this one untimely born? Because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, God's kingdom needed to be expanded and extended, and he was the chosen instrument that God wanted to use on three missionary journeys to plant all sorts of churches where Gentiles were converted. 
But this was not to the exclusion of the Jews. Romans chapters 9-11, through 11, Paul is clear that some branches have been broken off, others grafted in, the Gentiles, right? But he also indicates there that apparently, I believe, there will be some sort of salvation for ethnic Israel. Will that be over a period of church history? Maybe. Will that be at the end of time where there's a mass revival of Jews that come to know Christ? Maybe. But what Paul certainly didn't teach and what the New Testament certainly doesn't teach is what you might have heard of, and that is called replacement theology. Which essentially says that the church replaces Israel. That's a really bad term to use because behind that term, it's a loaded term, it's pejorative, because by calling it replacement theology, they want you to think that God was doing something with the Jews in the Old Testament, then He's done with them, and now He's just operating through the Gentiles. And that term is unhelpfully used by people because they don't see that the true people of God, the true Israel of God, is Jews and Gentiles who are found in Christ, which is not replacement theology, it's fulfillment theology, because God promised to Abraham that He would bless all the nations of the world. So does God have a special plan for Israel? Well, He did, in the sense that they were the vehicle of the Old Testament that He used from which the Messiah came. He did, in the sense that the apostles were all Jewish. He does, in the sense that we aren't ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the what? Jew first, and also the Greek. But the Jews are no special in God's eyes than any other person. What's special in God's eyes is the church, the true Israel of God. That's why later in this letter, in Galatians, Paul will say that the church is the Israel of God. He actually calls it the Israel of God. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Paul uses this language. Someone's going to have to help me. What verse is it in? Thank you. No, that's not right. I thought it was in chapter 6. Six, oh, I'm in Ephesians. That might be the problem. I knew it was in Galatians 6. Verse 16. Thank you. Yeah, almost the end. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is an epistle to the church. Paul calls the church the Israel of God. So again, how 14? Given the significance of 12... A new foundation, a new creation, the building of the church. Revelation 21, Luke 22, Matthew 19, 28. The twelve apostles will sit on twelve thrones and judge Israel. Okay? Twelve apostles minus one is eleven. Plus one equals twelve. Plus one, Paul. This is, this is crazy math, right? What happens in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1? I read it to you earlier. James the Apostle is martyred very early on in the church. So you begin with 12, 
Minus 1, that's 11. Plus 1, Matthias, that's 12. Plus another, that's Paul. That's 13 presently if you count Judas, 14. Judas doesn't count, so we're still at 13. Minus 1, James, back down to 12. I wasn't good at math, you can tell. But I don't think there's anything that's messed up in the plan of God, do you? James is killed very early on. Judas defects before Christ even raises from the dead and is crucified. He's replaced. James dies. What are we going to do? We'll get Paul. Nothing can thwart the purposes and plans of God. His church will be built. Twelve apostles representing the twelve tribes of Israel. The gospel extending to the Gentiles. And that's a good reminder to us. If you read Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology, if you read the section on the church, and he talks about the officers of the church, he speaks of two basic offices. He calls them the extraordinary offices, apostles, prophets, and the ordinary offices, pastors, pastor teachers, elders, deacons. God uses ordinary people. Twelve apostles were extraordinary. The Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live. The greatest apostle to ever live. He preached more sermons. He planted more churches. He suffered more than any other apostle. But there are no longer apostles today. The foundation's been laid. The foundation's been laid. Ephesians chapter 2. The apostles are the foundation along with the Old Testament prophets. So, how is the church built? Well, flip back with me to Ephesians. That's where I was. I was lost for a minute. Let's go back there. Apparently, I want to be there. So, let's turn there. Ephesians 4. Let's look at this. Verse 10. Well, we'll pick up in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. And now notice verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and notice there's one definite article, the shepherd teacher, the pastor teacher. Who does what? He equips the saints. Verse 12, for the work of ministry. For what? The building up of the body of Christ. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body of Christ. The church of Christ. Being built up. Foundation is laid. But it's built up by the word of the apostles. 
and the word of the prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, sola scriptura, back to the scriptures, back to the word of God. The power of the church is found in the scriptures. The way the church is built is through the proclamation of the gospel. The way the church grows is by the saints being edified. And where is the preaching today? Churches emphasize anything and everything but preaching. We've got this program, we've got this ministry, we've got this thing. You might like this, you might like this, you won't, you won't like this, but it's okay, you'll like this over here. Where's the preaching? Where's the standing on the authoritative word of the apostles and the prophets? Where is the thing that grows the church and builds the church into maturity so that it's stable and doctrinally sound to fight off the attacks of the enemy? See, this is a matter of kingdom warfare. You're a soldier in Christ's army, whether you like it or not. You were drafted sovereignly. And you have marching orders. You identify with the church. You stand with the church. You proclaim the gospel. And you trust that just as God converted Saul of Tarsus, He can convert anyone He wants in this community. He will call to Himself those He has chosen. We're called to be patient. We're called to be faithful. We're called to trust the Lord. And that's what we must do. So this series really isn't about the apostles. It's about the church. It's about the church going forth proclaiming the word of the apostles and the gospel of the apostles. Well, let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the scriptures. We've looked at many scriptures this evening and Lord considered many things in this series as we've looked at all of the apostles. One thing is for certain, Lord, we have really been humbled. We see these saints who have gone before us, these apostles, and Lord, we have so much to live up to. We could do far more for your kingdom. We could be far more holy, far more faithful, far more bolder for your truth. But Lord, if we're not sitting regularly under the instruction of your word and being built up and being stabilized, we we can't expect to be more holy, to be more faithful. So Lord, help us to be committed to the one thing the apostles were committed to, and that is the building of the church. Help everyone here this evening to love the church, to be willing to give themselves for the church, because your Son, Jesus Christ, gave himself for the church and for our salvation. Lord, until we meet again, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we pray you would bless us and keep us, guide us, guard us, and protect us. We pray all of this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.